but there's always the tension between the spiritual and the physical. He's wondering if he longs for the Garden of Eden. He casts his body's vest aside, and his soul f- flies up into the boughs like a bird. Is that better than being embodied? I think this is a really crucial point. He can't keep stumbling on melons. <laughs> That's a big loss. Yeah, I want to keep stumbling on melons. Yeah, you sure seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> can't get this image of this moment in The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob, remember, <laughs> keeps stepping on the rakes. He steps on a rake and it hits him in the face. And then he turns around and it happens again. And the, the camera slowly pans up and out. And he's just surrounded by the rakes. He's, <laughs> he's in the middle of this like giant football field full of rakes. Hi, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Claire about the poetry of Andrew Marvell. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you think harder about irony in poetry. But to begin, a quote about writing. This comes from Samuel Johnson. It's a very famous excerpt from his masterpiece, The Lives of the Poets, in which he kind of defines and categorizes and describes a group of poets who he calls the metaphysical poets. These poets include John Donne, George Herbert, Andrew Marvell, Richard Crashaw, a few others. Johnson is not very fond of this mode of writing poetry. But as is sometimes the case when you read Samuel Johnson, you discover that the very astute reasons he has for disliking a poet are often the reasons why that that poetry is so wonderful and so valuable. So even though his description of what the metaphysicals were up to is meant to be pejorative, it can be read as an equally good celebration of what makes their work so distinct and valuable. He says this about them. Their thoughts are often new, but seldom natural. They are not obvious, but neither are they just, and the reader, far from wondering that he missed them, wonders more frequently by what perverseness of industry they were ever found. But wit, abstracted from its effects upon the hearer, may be more rigorously and philosophically considered as a kind of discordia concours, a combination of dissimilar images or discovery of occult resemblances in things apparently unlike. Of wit, thus defined, they have more than enough. The most heterogeneous ideas are yoked by violence together. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons, and allusions. Their learning instructs and their subtlety surprises, but the reader commonly thinks his improvement dearly bought, and, though he sometimes admires, is seldom pleased. Johnson goes on to say, Those writers who lay on the watch for novelty could have little hope of greatness, for great things cannot have escaped former observation. This is so great. Just think of To His Coy Mistress as a prototypical example of this. It's a new thought, but it's not really a natural way to think, this argument that the speaker in that poem lays out. But then we might ask Johnson, isn't that why we like it? Isn't that most of its charm? We do, in fact, wonder by what perverseness of industry the speaker of To His Coy Mistress and many of these other poems came upon these ideas. But it is that surprise and wonder and strangeness of these ideas that gives the poems a lot of their charm. They do indeed yoke disparate ideas by violence together, but again, is this not why we love them? 
And I love the last bit of this quote that I read. Great things cannot have escaped former observation. Johnson feels that one reason perhaps why the metaphysical poets sometimes employ metaphors or conceits or comparisons or images or arguments that are so strained and so bizarre is because they want to sound original. They want to sound novel. And Johnson thinks that may or may not be true. Johnson thinks that people who want to sound novel can never really sound great because great things, as he says, are obvious and cannot have escaped former observation. This is one reason I love Johnson so much. This is both true and false. Great things indeed cannot escape former observation, but I think it's the job of every new generation of poets to make us see those old and common and familiar great things again, to remind us of them, to make them seem new, which is certainly something that Andrew Marvell and the rest of the metaphysical poets do. And for more about poems that are new but unnatural and that yoke different ideas by violence together and that are in many ways extremely novel, Let's go into that chat with me and Claire. Are you waiting for me to say something? <laughs> this is Claire Agerbrand, my wife, author of What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems. and the Hamlet. <laughs> and I think there is, actually, now that you say that, there's a book called... I can't remember the exact title. Some author wrote a story or a novel or something, and it's called like The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald by Susan White or something like this. Oh my gosh. Stroke of genius. No, but you are the author of uh, The Field is White, which is a novel. That's right. What was left of the stars? Yeah. Which is a book of poems. Yep. And you are the author of... No, no, no. Let's not go there. Anything new in your life? In my life? Yeah. No, actually, no. <laughs> Not a single thing. You voted for the first time. Oh, yeah. It's exciting, wasn't it? It was extremely exciting. And my daughter was really happy. She was, she's six and she helped me. She put my ballot in the box, drop-off box. We should tell people you voted for the first time, not because you've been lazy, but because you just became a citizen in February. Yes. It was an, a very exciting year to become an American citizen. <laughs> So I would I won't say, say who I voted for, but he did not vote for Kanye. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, I would say welcome, but I can't since I am not American yet. So I can't say welcome to America. So you have nothing to say to me. I have nothing to say. I still love it. Those people in the boat in the Andrew Marvell poem in Bermuda coming to this great land. <laughs> it's exactly the same. Looking for a segue into the poems. You've loved Andrew Marvell for, I think, longer than me. I think you I think you instantly loved... I mean, when you found... When you discovered, when you were assigned to read as an undergraduate to his coy mistress, you more or less instantly loved, loved it. Right? Well, yeah, not more or less. Definitely instantly. I liked it, and I admired its brazenness and its charm and some of its images, but it didn't become part of my soul, you know, back then. It has now, though. It's a, it's, it's an extremely heartbreaking and beautiful, and uh, I feel a very sad poem. Very sad. Could be that it's perhaps because I've I've spent the, the intervening twelve years slowly noticing Time's winged chariot coming closer and closer. <laughs> so I get it. How have you noticed that? <laughs> I, in myself, of course. <laughs> 
What I'm saying is that it's more personal to me now. The stakes are more personal. The stakes of that poem are more personal. Mm. The grave's a, a fine and quiet place, but none, I think, do their embrace are lines that I think about now more or less every day. And uh, they've become less of a joke to me. I still find them slightly funny, but they're not really funny anymore. They're serious. Mm -hmm. So we should start talking about this poem. Maybe let's read it, and then you can swoon over it. Okay. To his coy mistress. Wait, should you read this or should I? No. I guess I should because it, it's a man um, being creepy and gross. Here we go. <laughs> Had we but world enough and time, this coyness, lady, were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges' side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. A hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state nor would I love at lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may. And now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in this slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. The first line, the first sentence is already, already won me over. Had we but world enough and time. So the idea of, of enough world, it sounds so strange. Yeah, the time part I get. It's the world that's the surprising, right? If, if, yeah. if we were king and queen of the whole world, then yeah, why not take some time and go here and go there and explore a bit? But we, you know, we just have a little house or a little place. You you, you were saying before you started reading, it's a creepy guy. Yeah, I know you were joking, but... Yeah, I was joking. But I don't feel, I never felt like this was a poem. Maybe on the surface, it looks like a poem in which... A guy is nagging a girl. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. But then uh, he presents a very well thought through argument <laughs> for his urgency. And and into ashes all my lust. Lust is often viewed as a um, obviously negative thing. But in this poem, it's celebrated. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's a synonym for life, living, passion. Yeah. Being alive in the world. And living fully in the moment you're in. 
I mean, this is a carpe. This is the most famous carpe diem poems. Right. Tradition, I guess, starts with Horace. But yeah, to seize the day because you, you know, you might not have very many left. And I, I find the uh, sense of humor. I mean, it's almost the main tone of the poem. Almost. I feel like he's using this sense of humor to kind of mask the heartbreak underneath and thereby only highlights it all the more. It's like that sad smile kind of situation. Yeah, Byron. And if I laugh, it is so that I may not weep. Yeah. It's so great when he says, um, Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Just in and of itself gorgeous, right? If we had world enough, yeah, let's go to India, let's go to the Ganges and hunt for rubies. And you're worth it. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I, by the tide of Humber, would complain. <laughs> He's not going to change his personality. He's still going to complain. But just the locales will, will differ. I know, I love that. I think that's so beautiful. But it, this this goes to your point about how it's a very serious thing that he's talking about. It is a, it is a legitimate complaint that we are mortal mm-hmm. and we will die and we don't have all the time in the world to enjoy the pleasures of being alive. Right. This is not this is not a lighthearted complaint. Mm-mm. This is dead serious. I know you have all these lush images of uh, you know the Ganges side and the and empires and vegetable love yeah <laughs> and then he gets to the um, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity it's so beautiful and bleak <laughs> and so modern too I mean this is four hundred years old this poem but it's so modern both in sensibility and in tone and sound I think deserts of vast eternity I mean yeah I hear. I don't hear anything old or antique about that. No. How beautiful is it about this rolling all our strength and sweetness into one ball? I know. I just think of a wrecking ball or a cannon or something that tears through the iron gates of life. It's. I mean, he's talking about. I, I. I was taught back in the day that this is the. This is how birds of prey mate. They fly yeah. way up and link, and then they, you know, into one ball, and then they just fall. This image of the sphere transforms itself mm-hmm. throughout the poem just like defiant joy mm-hmm. you know we can't make the sun stand still but we can be defiant in our will to live mm-hmm. what do you think we will make him run means i just i love the image of the sun following after these two lovers trying to keep up with them oh is that what's happening that's what i yeah you gonna picture that? Could be the sun running away from them. The sun is scared of the, the strength. I don't know. Oh, no, no. I, I felt like since we can't be time, we're going to outrun time. Maybe this is both the same thing, like, you know, time flies when you're having fun kind of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was picturing um, two lovers running ahead of the sun. Mm. Running ahead of time. So your experience of reading this poem is one in which this is both ironic and sincere. He means what he says, but he's using hyperbole maybe yes. to make his point. Yes, he uses hyperbole for a comic effect and for heartbreaking effect. What would you say to people who, because I think people, some people read this poem as a kind of satire or parody on how not to woo. Mm. You know, that he's he doesn't know that he's making a fool of himself. Mm. The fool turns kind of into a wise person here. He's the one who understands mm. Mm. what life actually is. Okay, this is very good. We can we can transition from this point 
into the garden. Because I have the same question about the garden. Do you think the garden should be taken at face value? The garden is a poem in which, among other things, it's argued that the ideal life is one of total isolation and solitude, without any community, without any family, without even any marriage, that Eden was better before Eve arrived. <laughs> There's some misogyny, for sure, here. I mean, one could allege that there is some. So the question, I'll read this poem, and then the question is, how ironic or how sincere should we take these arguments? Okay. Also, I mean, hopefully it goes without saying, the more important question is, why is this poem great? Mm. What are our favorite bits? Yeah. You know, why is this poem worth reading? What delights you about it? The Garden. How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays, and their incessant labors see, crowned from some single herb or tree, whose short and narrow virgin shade does prudently their toils upbraid while all flowers and all trees do close to weave the garlands of repose. Fair quiet have I found thee here, and innocence thy sister dear. Mistaken long I sought you then in busy companies of men. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. Society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. No white nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. Fond lovers, cruel as their flame, cut in these trees their mistress's name. Little, alas, they know, or heed, how far these beauties hers exceed. Fair trees, where sere your barks I wound, no name shall but your own be found. When we have run our passion's heat, love hither makes his best retreat. The gods that mortal beauty chase, still in a tree did end their race. Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow. And Pan did after Syrinx speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. What wondrous life in this I lead. Ripe apples drop about my head, the luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. The nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach, stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers I fall on grass. Meanwhile the mind, from pleasure less, withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find, yet it creates, transcending these, far other worlds and other seas, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Here at the fountain's sliding foot or at some fruit tree's mossy root, casting the body's vest aside, my soul into the boughs does glide. There like a bird it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings, until prepared for longer flight, waves in its plumes the various light. Such was that happy garden state, while man there walked without a mate, after a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be meet? But twas beyond a mortal's share to wander solitary there. Two paradises twere in one to live in paradise alone. How well the skillful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial knew, where from above the milder sun does through a fragrant zodiac run. And as it works, the industrious bee computes its time as well as we. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? So we'll put aside the question of irony versus sincerity. What's so great about this poem just on the level of the line? I mean, what's delightful about it? 
lush and and colorful and just rich details. I'm thinking especially of also this very strange line to a green thought in a green shade. Love the idea of a green thought. There's something Wallace Stevens about that too. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if Wallace Stevens wasn't inspired by this poem, maybe subconsciously or, you know, directly when he uh, wrote his Gold Sides of Green Sides or, well, not just that poem, but many of his Florida poems, for example. Well, he has so many poems. My world is your world. My world is my world. Yours is yours, right? It's like the sentiment that he has in poem after poem of the imagination. God and the imagination are one, he says in the poem. Mm. So the imagination, the mind, annihilates everything else, mm. is its own ocean. Mm. What exists truly is thought. And I love the stanza that comes before that one. Ripe apples drop about my head. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. So I saw Michael reading the other day, and he just started laughing. And I was like, what are you laughing at? And he read this line to me, stumbling on, stumbling on melons as I pass. It's and so funny. <laughs> it's like something out of The Simpsons. Like, <laughs> this garden is so beautiful. I, I keep tripping over melons. <laughs> It's so funny. Melons are weird. If you ever see a watermelon field, it's ridiculous. <laughs> you realize like how awkwardly luscious nature is. Just these huge red-filled, sugar-filled orbs. <laughs> Scattered so thickly yeah. that I can't walk <laughs> because there's, there's too many. They keep getting in my way. I mean, this is so funny. And this is wonderful. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my upon my mouth do crush their wine. It's like I these know. aggressive trees. Like you will enjoy me. I know, and this is why I don't buy his argument at all that nature is better and solitude is better than society. So, why not? Because why, why don't you buy this? Because nature is personified. He gives human qualities to nature. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He clearly yearns for humans the nectarines and the nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach and it even says i'm looking for this moment where he even says he, he talks about the the people who carve their lovers names into the mm -hmm. trees and says little alas they know or heed how far these beauties hers exceed so he's just replacing one beloved a human beloved with mm. botanical beloveds right you know and says even in mythology there have been people who fell in love with plants or humans who plants who used to be humans right so mm -hmm. yeah it's not you're right it's technically not solitude yeah. it's just a different type of community more like it's a, a narrator who's been who's been hurt by love and um is trying to convince himself that he doesn't need it withdraws to nature but he turns nature into his company or even lover this is a very astute point it not really occurred to me to read this poem in this way that it, but I should have because it, especially coming after some of those mower poems, mm -hmm. where the mower wounds himself with the scythe. Remember that this is, yes. I think, Damon the mower. Mm -hmm. He wounds himself, and then there's the Juliana poem. Yeah. Um, yeah, these all kind of go in a sequence. I mean, they're not technically a sequence, but they all kind of belong in the same family and inform each other in important ways. Mm -hmm. So when he says quiet, I'm looking for quiet and innocence. Mm -hmm. mistaken long i sought you then in busy companies of men yeah bad things happened to him with other people yeah. so he says 
the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness, mm-hmm. which I find so beautiful. But you're right. It's tinged with this wounded heartbreak. Definitely. And the mind is the place. It's it's maybe one of the best stanzas in, I don't know, English literature, I think. I don't know how wide I should cast this net. I think it's one of the best stanzas in English literature. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the mind from pleasure less... What does that mean exactly? People have written all about this. No one's quite sure what is this pleasure from pleasure less. Does this mean things outside of nature are a lesser pleasure? It's a draw it's so the mind is withdrawing from that lesser pleasure, the pleasure of the city, the pleasure of society, human company. Mm-hmm. Into its original happiness. Yeah, into with, its Eden. Withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find. Which is so good because you can think Everything in the world I can have in my mind, this is kind of, it's one way to think about poetry. I don't want to get, uh, I feel, oh no, I feel an interpretation coming on, but. Well, that's what poems, I mean, that's what poems are for, not painstaking analysis, but it's supposed to make you feel and think. So with your permission, I will now think. Yeah. (laughs) It reminds me of Plato, you know, his whole idea about mimesis and all the poet has, to, all the poet does is hold a mirror up to nature. This is one of Plato's arguments when he critiques poets in, and poetry in the Republic. Poetry is easy. All you have to do is hold a mirror up to nature. This is what those two lines say to me, that the mind finds a double for everything in the external world. This kind of, you have a mirror of the world in your mind. Hmm. But Andrew Marvell very astutely adds this critique to Plato, it's not, poetry isn't just mimesis. It's not just a doubling one for one. Because the mind, he says, yet it creates. Mm. So it doesn't just find resemblances. It creates, transcending these, this one for one correspondence, Mm -hmm. right? The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find, yet it creates, transcending these, Far other worlds and other seas. Just like the poet is doing at that exact moment. This garden doesn't exist in the world, right? Yeah. There's no such garden where the where the grapes pour wine in your mouth, <laughs> force themselves upon you. You know, it's kind of the invention of you know science fiction, or well, it, it's a celebration of the imagination. Yeah, the mind creates other worlds and other seas. Each couplet complicates it. So this couplet complicated the previous one, but the couplet that comes next complicates this one. Annihil- so the act of the the act of imagining mm-hmm. is good, and yet it has this dark side because it annihilates all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Is that good or bad? Um, it sounds pretty great. <laughs> does it? I mean, yeah, it does. Certainly, half my brain thinks so. But then you think. Is this too much withdrawing? You know, is this wounded person has he hasn't he rejected the world in a kind of bad way? You don't you don't want to live in thought, do you? You want to live in the world too. It's hard to know if this poem is putting forth an argument that we should celebrate or critique. I want I want to do both, I've, and that could very well be a reason why it's great because I want to do both. I want to celebrate this argument and critique it. Yeah, it's like in so many of his poems, there is that. Uh I hate saying the tension between. <laughs> Go for it. But there's always the tension between the spiritual and the physical. Yeah. And that is a very interesting tension. He's wondering if he longs for the Garden of Eden. He's trying to figure out if 
Eden was actually better without Eve. Two paradises torn one to live in paradise alone. Or even more fundamentally, I think your point is right about the soul, the, the spiritual versus the physical. Because even then in the next in the next stanza, he casts his body's vest aside and his soul f- flies up into the boughs like a bird. Mm. Is that better than being embodied? I think this is a really crucial point. You can't keep stumbling on melons. <laughs> That's a big loss. Yeah, I want to keep stumbling on melons. Yeah, and you sure seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> can't get this image of... This moment in The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob, remember, <laughs> keeps stepping on the rakes. He steps on a rake and it hits him in the face. And then he turns around and it happens again. And the, the camera slowly pans up and out. And he's just surrounded by the rakes. He's, <laughs> he's in the middle of this like giant football field full of rakes. I can't get that image out of my head. Stumbling is great, too, because it's that's such a good verb, because it's a fall. you know. So this is about the Garden of Eden. They f- They fall. They partake of the fruit, right? And they quote unquote fall. Yeah. But he's enacting this fall and this kind of like comedic, almost sideshow slapstick. You know what I mean? Like he keeps falling. He falls and falls and falls. I think like a poem like um, Paradise Lost, I mean, or Genesis, you know, present the fall as a singular event, as this kind of grand cataclysmic one-time fracture in in human history. Mm. Something that could never be repeated and never be repaired. I think Marvell is suggesting that we live our lives as a series of many falls. You know, we're constantly falling out of Eden Mm -hmm. in small ways. And maybe this is good and maybe this is bad. You know, maybe I don't want to be in Eden, as this poem might suggest through its subtext. We fall and we fall and we fall and we fall. We fall in love. We get wounded by love. We get wounded by society. And we, yeah, we, like we keep falling this... into we keep falling into our consciousness, into our imaginations. Yes. This, this retreat from the world into the mind, from the world into the mind, yeah. is something that happens on an hourly basis. So mm. we should stop thinking about the fall from paradise as something that happened way back in the day, and start thinking about it as this like slightly lighthearted, routine, almost banal, ubiquitous aspect of life. If you're trying to imagine, at like this narrator, a type of Eden, even in this Eden, there's it's the perfection of it and its richness and fertility that makes that keeps him stumbling. It's not that's not a safe place either. Right. There's no yeah. There's no safety in completely withdrawing into even the most beautiful, quiet imaginary setting. I mean, this is Damon and the Mower. I don't want to read all of Damon and the Mower, but if you go to Damon and the Mower, Damon's complaint. So he falls in love and he wounds himself with the scythe. And this becomes a kind of embodiment of the the wound of love. And he says, how happy might I still have mowed had not love here his thistles sowed. But now I all the day complain, joining my labor and my pain. And with my scythe cut down the grass, yet still my grief is where it was. But when the iron blunter go, grows, sighing, I wet my scythe with woe. So there's this recursive act of mowing. You cut, you swing, and you swing, and you swing. And he says, but now I all the day complain. And you complain, you 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 grieve, and you grieve, and you grieve about, about your lost love. Mm-hmm. This is just the condition of living, right? The fall is a kind of constant thing. Yeah, it's a repetitive, almost uh, tedious. It's almost tedious. Yeah. I love all these mowing Poems. They're absolutely beautiful. Let's read The Mower to the Glowworms. It's short and extremely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Ye living lamps, by whose dear light the nightingale does sit so late. 
and studying all the summer night her matchless songs do meditate. Ye country comets that portend no war nor prince's funeral, shining unto no higher end than to presage the grasses fall. Ye glowworms, whose officious flame to wandering mowers shows the way, that in the night have lost their aim, and after foolish fires do stray. Your courteous lights in vain you waste, since Juliana here is come, for she my mind hath so displaced that I shall never find my home. I don't really know if this poem needs commentary. I mean, it's quite... Yeah, we have the themes of the fall again, the grasses fall, this kind of longing for... Lost home. A lost home, the wound of love. But it's just so gorgeous, you know? It's so pretty. Country comets. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's good. It's so good. Shining into no higher end than to presage the grasses fall. And I love the, the, the structure of this poem. Ye living lamps, ye country comets, ye glowworms. Yeah, it kind of, that soft ye kind of evokes the um, the glowworms or the fire flies rising from a field. That's what mm. it kind of feels like. They keep keep coming up one after another. You know what I mean? They're beautiful, but he says in the end that this is all for nothing. You should, don't waste your time. Can't find my home now. <laughs> no so light's going to guide me home. It's so bittersweet. It's so wonderfully conflicted and bittersweet, right? It's not a totally one-sided life is gorgeous poem. It's not a totally one-sided life is horrible and not worth living poem. Mm. It's this wonderfully conflicted mix. Mm. The world couldn't be more beautiful, and yet, what good does that do me? Um, you also wanted to read... The Mower's Song. You can read it. The Mower's Song. My mind was once the true survey of all the meadows fresh and gay, and in the greenness of the grass did see its hopes as in a glass. When Juliana came, and she what I do to the grass does to my thoughts and me. But these, while I with sorrow pine, grew more luxuriant still and fine, that not one blade of grass you spied, but had a flower on either side when Juliana came. And she what I do to the grass does to my thoughts and me. Unthankful meadows, could you sow a fellowship so true forego, and in your gaudy May games meet, while I lay trodden under feet? When Juliana came, and she what I do to the grass does to my thoughts and me. But what you in compassion ought shall now by my revenge be wrought, and flowers and grass and I and all will in one common ruin fall. For Juliana comes, and she what I do to the grass does to my thoughts and me. And thus ye meadows, which have been companions of my thoughts more green, shall now the heraldry become, with which I shall adorn my tomb. For Juliana comes, and she what I do to the grass does to my thoughts and me. Your eyes are wide. <sighs> I, well, I already have a weakness for farming imagery and poems. <laughs> and I, I just love the repetition of those last two lines in each stanza. I love that feeling of him mowing the grass and while she simultaneously is doing something similar to his mind. So these two things are happening sim you know, simultaneously or side by side or kind of within each other. And that feels very, uh, well, sad and uh, dramatic. It doesn't feel like it's just repeated because it's a song. The repetition works and kind of gathers momentum, doesn't it? 
Totally. And I love the syntax. You, you, see, you say these two things are happening at the same time. It's happening externally and internally. Yeah. And it's embedded that way in the syntax. You know, the syntax of that last refrain is, is kind of twisted in a beautiful way to suggest that these two locations, the internal and the external, are inextricable from each other. Mm. Perhaps the mind is not a retreat, a total retreat, like the, the speaker of the garden thinks it is, you know, mm-hmm. because she reaches that retreat. She reaches everything. You know, it's, there's no escaping how horrible love can sometimes make you feel. Yeah. You know, yet further, not proof, but suggestion that, yeah, the speaker of the garden doesn't quite know what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Trying to wish for things that he doesn't really wish for. And That's right. Appleton? Yeah, you read Appleton and kind of regretted it. Do you have anything to, do you want to just commiserate for the people listening who I'm making read this poem? Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I'm making them read this whole book. So yeah, it's in there. Well, yeah. (laughs) I started reading it. Strangely confusing and uh, long. And then I checked the next page and just checked the next and it kept going and going. I'm like, wait, this is like. 30 pages long. <laughs> I read it all, but, and there were, there were some moments that were nice, but I have to say I was, uh, I was really confused. Yeah, which I think is inevitable. This is not a very open poem. No, and felt like kind of private in well, not a good way. Like I was felt left out. Well, it has a dedication. Yeah, I know. Right under the title, it says, To My Lord Fairfax. So, I mean, I think maybe we'll talk about this more in class, but do you have anything to say in general about the risks or consequences of not envisioning a broad audience? If you if if we spent five minutes, we probably could think of great and open poems that do have private audiences. So that doesn't automatically lead to these same risks. I, I, I think it is a great poem still, but it's marred by this privateness. I definitely didn't go into it with the right, right mindset, especially coming from the other poems. I wasn't prepared for all the uh, strange historical details. You know what I mean? I actually had to look up the poem online. I'm like, wait, I, I missed. What is what is this stuff about the nuts? <laughs> you know, I had to kind of read, I hate to say it, but a plot summary <laughs> for a poem. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I don't know why we feel shame in this, because teachers tell us that we are forbidden from consulting help, I think, maybe. So we feel we've ingrained like some kind of egotistical pride. If I can't do it alone, I'm doing it wrong. But this is by no means a fair way to think. Yeah, that's true. And some of these works are extremely complicated. So why not get help where, where you can get it? Mm. I mean, knowing the pl- and then knowing the plot helped a little bit, <laughs> but, what it- but I still wasn't uh, delighted like I am with his other poems. You know what I mean? So, if you wanted to write a poem to a person about their specific family history, because once you consult a plot summary, you learn that he's referring to like the grandparents or the parents of this person and something that happened in their family history, the story. Yeah. So, is it possible to write a poem about such a topic? So, you know, think of a person that you know. Think of writing a poem to them and describing an event that happened to their grandparents. How do you make a poem like that open, accessible, lasting, and for everyone? Or or is it impossible? I don't No, I think it's you can write a poem about anything, but 
in this case, you have to, yeah, you have to use good characterization that makes these characters alive for other people who know nothing about them. Keep imagining readers who don't know anything about these people. Yeah. And perhaps Marvell wasn't. He just, maybe he just literally was only expecting this poem to be private. Yeah. You know, the metaphysical poets, by the way, I should say, and I think you would agree, that we, I don't put much stock in these terms, metaphysical poet. I mean, mm. it's kind of a meaningless term. Marvell and John Donne and George Herbert and these people weren't writing with this term. This was given to them a century or more later. Mm. It's not, they didn't join an official club. You know what I mean? So it's stupid to paint them in a box and label it and therefore change our expectations or see them only through that one lens. You know what I mean? But it is true that in those days, many of these poems were only existing in kind of private circles and they would just be passed around from person to person. So yeah. it's possible that Marvell literally wasn't expecting a wider audience. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I didn't feel fully let in or slash invited. Yeah. No, I don't think we are invited. Yeah. We we get to read a private poem yeah. and we have to suffer the consequences of that privateness, but we get to enjoy I'll only read one stanza and you can find stuff like this throughout. So if you're confused yeah. and bored, of course you are. It's not for you. This poem is not for you. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Listen to this. But now the salmon fishers moist their leathern boats begin to hoist and like antipodes in shoes have shod their heads in their canoes how tortoise-like but not so slow these rational amphibia go let's in for the dark hemisphere does now like one of them appear it's so genius and funny and brilliant hmm. seen people carry canoes canoes on their heads they are inver inverted shoes yeah. you know what i mean the canoe becomes this giant shoe that they've put their heads into it's so great. Tortoise-like, but not so slow, you know? I guess this poem was included in this collection for uh, those moments. I do remember there's something lovely where the fish are suspended in the water it's, because it's, of the presence slash beauty of, yeah, I think. Mary Fairfax? I think the nun. Yeah, no. And it does, I like the beginning a lot. It has a lot of, I think, very interesting things to say about architecture and subtly all art in general. Also, I should say it is a tour de force of formal control. I mean, for 90 stanzas to write in this strict form is not easy. So it's dazzling for that reason. Mm. Let's read Bermuda. And then I'm going to read two poems to show how we can be influenced by him. Bermuda is, I don't know, my favorite Andrew Marvell poem. Second favorite is up there. It's actually called Bermuda's, plural. Yeah, so just imagine being in a boat 400 years ago, rowing in the dark, imagining finding land, land that is totally unknown to you, and hoping that it's good and hospitable. Where the remote Bermudas ride in the ocean's bosom unespied, from a small boat that rowed along, the listening winds received this song. What should we do but sing his praise that led us through the watery maze, unto an isle so long unknown and yet far kinder than our own, where he, the huge sea monster, racks that lift the deep upon their backs. He lands us on a grassy stage, safe from the storms and prelates' rage. He gave us this eternal spring, which here enamels everything, and sends the fowls to us in care on daily visits through the air. 
He hangs in shades the orange bright, like golden lamps in a green night, and does in the pomegranate's close jewels more rich than Ormus shows. He makes the figs melt. He makes the figs our mouths to meet, and throws the melons at our feet. But apples plants of such a price, no tree could ever bear them twice. With cedars chosen by his hand, from Lebanon he stores the land, and makes the hollow seas that roar proclaim the ambergris on shore. He cast, of which we rather boast, the gospel's pearl upon our coast, and in these rocks for us did frame a temple where to sound his name. O let our voice his praise exult, till it arrive at heaven's vault, which thence perhaps rebounding may echo beyond the Mexique Bay. Thus sung they in the English boat, and holy and a cheerful note, and all the way to guide their chime, with falling oars they kept the time. Great poem, right? Bermudas. Yeah, it's beautiful. One of the things I noticed when we read it together was uh, that these uh, sailors, they can't help but thank God just over and over and over again in the way that nature can make us, whether we believe in God or not, nature has this way of making us brim over with gratitude. Sometimes, you know, here in Utah especially, I go on these gorgeous hikes and I just find myself saying, without really realizing it, just thank you, thank you over and over. (laughs) Not like out loud, but it's just like continuous prayer almost. What should we do but sing his praise? Yeah, it's totally spontaneous. Yeah. Can I play devil's advocate without, I mean, I, I agree with you, but let me embody a person who doesn't. Yeah. Isn't this also slightly absurd? I mean, this prayer is so hyperbolic that should we take it seriously? He, and sends us fowls to us in care on daily visits through the air. <laughs> this is like Uber Eats of the 17th century, you know? Here comes our order of chicken through the air, landing right in front of us, ready to consume. You know, it's it's quite, I mean... But it feels like that sometimes. And I bet for somebody who's never been anywhere tropical, that's... You yeah, know, that's true. You would be overwhelmed by the richness and the life and the just... You know, only hyperbole will do because that kind of nature seems itself like hyperbole. You're so right. I just want to play devil's advocate because I do think it's this poem is even greater because it still retains some of that silliness. Mm-hmm. So it is sincere. It is the yes. spontaneous kind of like celebration of the bounty of creation, without a doubt. And yet, we could ask ourselves: so we're given the we're given that pleasure, but we're given the extra pleasure of saying, "But wait a minute, do these sailors?" Does this author really mean it, or is he giving us little subtle clues that this is all like in the garden, like they protest too much, or they sell? I think they they celebrate too much. You know, he makes the figs our mouths to meet and throws the melons at our feet. It's like, well, no, <laughs> does I, he? <laughs> I feel like this this is completely genuine. The narrator might um, be smirking at it, but. It does seem completely genuine. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. It's it's both, right? Yeah. Surely it's if it if it was only genuine, it would be a great poem. But I think it's even slightly greater because there is a sense also embedded of a smirk. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love him so much. He he sees and delights in um, our ability to completely 
swoon over things and be completely taken over by some some passion. Yeah, while being willing to... Make fools of ourselves. That's right. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's wonderfully ironic and sincere at the same time. Mm-hmm. And really, what, I mean, aren't those your favorite kind of people? Yeah. Who make fools of themselves because they love something so much. <laughs> They're not shy of being extremely enthusiastic, and they they don't care that they are making themselves look slightly foolish through their joy. Right. I mean, what's the point of bridling your enthusiasm for something? Life's too short for that. Amen. Something I want to say about his prosody, his, his, his kind of rhyme and meter here that we haven't really emphasized is how wonderfully varied these lines are. He mostly keeps, keeps to the strict tetrameter four-foot line, but he loves to vary it. And one of his favorite forms of variation is this, like golden lamps in a green night. So instead of da-dun, 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 we get da-da-da-dun, da-da-da-da-dun which is exactly the same as to a green thought in a green shade, like golden lamps in a green night. So he's giving us little variations on this pattern. But also into his coy mistress, it's wonderful, his use of enjambment. Sorry, not enjambment, sejura is wonderful. I guess enjambment too, yeah? Uh, we would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our love long day. Thou by the Indies Ganges side should rubies find. Pause. I by the tide enjambment of Humber would complain. Pause. I would, in Jammin, love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. No, Sejuras. So he's constantly moving us... Out of the metronome. Out of the metronome. That's extremely well put. Um, okay, I just want to talk about, if you're still not convinced that we can learn from these old poets, Derek Walcott, who won the Nobel Prize in, I'm not sure, 1994? can't remember. His very first book is called In a Green Night. And it takes this title from this poem, Bermuda's, by Andrew Marvell. And he has this poem, In a Green Night. I feel like I've done too much reading. No, it's good. Is it? Yeah. It's probably not. It's good. This poem is a page long. Should I read it? And then there's two more stanzas from another poem I want to read. It's fine. Is it too much? No, it's interesting. I doubt that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so this poem is called, this is by Derek Walcott. This poem is probably, well, by now it's probably 50 years old, but still of our moment, I would say. It's called In a Green Night. And while I'm reading this, all I want you to do is listen to how Marvellian it is. It is so extremely Marvellian. It's, it sounds old and new. It sounds timeless, I guess is my point. It sounds timeless. You could convince somebody that Marvell wrote this, I think. In a Green Night. The orange tree in various light proclaims perfected fables now that her last season's summer height bends from each overburdened bough. She has her winters and her spring, her molt of leaves, which in their fall reveal as with each living thing zones truer than the tropical. For if by night each golden sun burns in a comfortable creed, by noon harsh fires have begun to quail those splendors which they feed or mixtures of the dew and dust that early shone on orbs of brass, model her splendors with the rust she sought all summer to surpass. By such strange cyclic chemistry that dooms and glories her at once, as green yet aging orange tree, the mind enspheres all circumstance. No Florida loud with citron leaves, 
with crystal falls to heal this age, shall calm the darkening fear that grieves the loss of visionary rage. Or if time's fires seem to blight the nature ripening into art, not the fierce noon or lampless night can quail the comprehending heart. The orange tree, in various light, proclaims that fable perfect now, that her last season's summer height bends from each overburdened bough. It's quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And quite... Bermudas-esque. Do I want to say old-fashioned sounding? It, it, it's, uh, that sounds pejorative to say that something sounds old-fashioned. It sounds wonderfully traditional. Yes. It sounds like um, it loves traditional poetry rather than blindly follows it. That's great. It loves it and wants to celebrate it and wants to make it seem alive again. Wants, mm-hmm. wants to continue that tradition. Yeah. Um, you don't know this, but I've written a poem. I'm not going to read all of it. I've written a poem. For me? Well, it's about your recent cactus obsession. Oh. <laughs> or how many cacti would you say we have? Well, we have uh, something around 80 plants, but I would say half of them are cacti. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> so they've slowly been creeping in. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, it's been very interesting to me watching the, these this army of cacti slowly move into the house. And so I was thinking, I want to write a poem about this. And I was thinking, okay, what would this poem look like? It's about, this poem is going to be about, okay, first of all, let me say that this is a total mistake to do, to talk about me, to talk about my poetry. And to read some of my poems is totally narcissistic and, no, it's I not. don't know what, horribly embarrassing. <laughs> I'm doing it because I think... It's worth the payoff. The payoff, I hope, will be that you all listening in this class can see that this dead, long, long, long dead poet is still alive for at least, you know, one person on this earth. And that there's no reason why dead poets can't affect every aspect of our poetry. That's what I hope this exercise will prove. I was thinking, okay, so this is going to be a poem about plants. You've created a kind of indoor garden. (laughs) So immediately I thought, oh, Marvell writes a lot about that. And... There's that one poem, The Garden, by Marvell. And it's this kind of like weird Adam and Eve, except without the Eve. So I thought, Adam and Eve, you know, again, grandiose. Here you and I are in this little Eden that you've created for us, you know. You are tending your garden, you know, very Eve-like. I don't know what Adam's up to, wasting his time (laughs) writing poems. So I assume that responsibility to waste time and write poems. So I thought, I am... I, I. why don't I just use Marvell as a kind of uh, guide and model for this poem? So I started reading a lot of Marvell and the garden in particular, I read over and over again. And I just stole that form. So I've written this poem. This poem is called The Cacti. And it is in that eight line tetrameter rhyming couplet stanza. It's the exact same form as the garden. Why? Do, and I want this to be kind of noticeable. Why do I want this to be noticeable? I want people to notice that I am influenced by Marvell because, as you say about Walcott, Claire, I want people to see my love for the tradition Mm. and I want my poems, I want to increase my poems' chances of having a future life by grafting them onto a pre-existing and very healthy ancient tree. Mm Yeah? Yeah, love that image. So, very Marvellian image. So, uh, don't look, Claire, at the last. I'm going to read. It's exciting. I'm only going to read the first two stanzas. Because technically this poem isn't finished yet. 
this is still in a draft stage. So there's like 80 reasons why this is a horrible plan. This is very rare. Yeah, I never do this. I know. I never read you my poems. I know. And I'm positive that I, I am about to embarrass myself. But I'm doing the. <laughs> I'm throwing myself on this grenade. I am martyring myself, you guys, for the greater good. You're all very welcome. <laughs> um, so I'll read these two stanzas. You'll hear how traditional they sound and, and formally strict they sound. But I also hope that I've achieved something that doesn't sound old-fashioned in a bad way. I'll read these and then, Claire, you will, I guess, weep at their beauty. <laughs> and at your wisdom in marrying me. Uh, this, th- so these, this is the first two, these are the first two stanzas uh, of a poem called The Cacti. Then to my safe, dull world they came. Weird birds my wife wanted to tame, legions of spikes and spines and quills roosting on tables, crowding sills, maces and morning stars that she rifled from nature's armory, half-sprung grenades and razor gauze filling the gaps where softness was, brought home from nurseries, shipped by mail, two cut from the Mojave shale illegally, three filling shelves with inbred cuttings of themselves, crude cousins in a hunched-backed bloom, colluding across the living room with dragon eggs and devil's phlegm, a barb-encrusted diadem, because you see I've been reading Dickinson, so I stole this diadem, (laughs) a barb-encrusted diadem of, of torturous gold, tantrums of green. Why are they here? What do they mean? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Why don't you read the whole thing? No, it's not done. Um... I want to show you, like, so you can hear the tetrameter rhymes, but I love this moment that you love, Claire, in, um, and I love it rhythmically. I love it mostly for its rhythm. You say, no, stop. I'm trying to peek at the end of the poem. But he no, it's not the me. end. It's a page and a half, so right. the end is still uh, um, in the vault. You love this moment, Claire, in um, To His Coy Mistress, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Mm-hmm. You hear the rhythm there alter. It's not strictly speaking, da 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 da. It weirdly speeds up. There's these longer words, you know, deserts of that. It starts with the stress, deserts of vast eternity. Mm-hmm. I love that moment rhythmically so much. I wanted one like it in my poem. So I say, maces and morning stars that she rifled from nature's armory. I'm consciously mm-hmm. trying to sound like Marvel sounds, you know? Not that I've pulled it off. Of course, this poem won't last nearly as long as Marvel's, but. Let me have the poem. <laughs> you, well, it's not a prize exactly to be. It is a prize to be I, awarded. I love my plants. You wrote a poem about my plants. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it is slightly fictionalized because I think I, in the poem I make it sound like there are more, but forty is a lot of cacti. And, and just so you know, I did not steal any cacti from the Mojave Desert. Well, we kind of did. Well, not really though. <laughs> no. A confession: the, the the BLM can come hunt us down, I suppose. But I, it's not. You're probably picturing me taking home a. 300 pound uh what are those cacti called cigarro cigarro yeah something yeah anyway it's not one of those i well anyway it doesn't matter it's just cuttings little inchling cuttings from a ditch yes we didn't break any cacti we just took a few of their children (laughs) and we found out later that technically i think this is illegal yeah sorry sorry but we we love them and take good care of them it was to propagate them yeah and to give them a better home yeah. <laughs> we can justify our sins however we want. But. I love that part about the uh, filling the places where softness was. Yeah, I'm a good poet, aren't I? <laughs> really, really good stuff. 
Last words about Marvel. Just uh, I aspire to be as passionate as he is. Passion, that's a good one. Passionate about people and nature. Yeah. All right, well. Now for the writing prompt. As you heard in that discussion, many of these poems delight us by how deeply ironic they are. We never quite know if we should take them on face value. This is definitely a strength, that they can be read in multiple ways like this. Does the speaker of To His Koi Mistress, for example, really believe that this is the best way to seduce a woman? Or is this a kind of satire on the extremes that a foolish and lustful person will go to secure what he wants? Does Andrew Marvell really believe that a life of complete solitude is better? Well, maybe not, but the speaker of his poem The Garden, at least, doesn't flinch in asserting this belief. So for this prompt, I want you to take a position that you don't really hold. It doesn't have to be a position in polar opposite to one that you actually do hold. Just think of an idea or an argument or a stance that you don't subscribe to and pretend that you do. This can be anything. It can be political. It can be apolitical. It can be large or small. For example, poetry is pointless, or, for example, poetry is the most important thing in the world, or a stance that Andrew Marvell takes up from time to time, beauty is corrupting, or if you want to take the opposite stance, beauty is morally ennobling. I want it to be a stance that you do have some disagreements with, and then begin drafting a poem from the point of view of a person who does believe this stance. Don't sabotage or undermine this position, or don't do so overtly. Remember, think of the garden as an example. We only suspect that this is an ironic poem because of the hyperbole, because of the extremeness of the argument. We think the author can't really believe this. So try to hold on to this belief for the entire length of the poem and see where it takes you. This could make a great poem, like I say, because it will embed this kind of deep irony into it. But it is also, I think, a healthy mental exercise to stay for a long time inside of, of a position that you don't hold, and to try to argue it as strongly and as persuasively and as charitably as you can. And now for the poem of the day. Since Andrew Marvell is the author of maybe the most famous Carpe Diem poem, I thought I would read, I don't know, maybe the second or third most famous Carpe Diem poem. Certainly a poem I've loved for a long, long time. It's by Christopher Marlowe, and it's called The Passionate Shepherd to His Love. Come live with me, and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove. That valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks. By shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle embroidered all with leaves of myrtle, a gown made of the finest wool which from our pretty lambs we pull, fair lined slippers for the cold with buckles of the purest gold a belt of straw and ivy buds with coral clasps and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me 
and be my love. The shepherds' swains shall dance and sing, for they delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. That's it for now. The next recording will be a chat between me and Benjamin about uh, a few Shakespeare soliloquies, which I'm very excited for. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing. Try inhabiting mentally positions that you don't currently hold, flexing your irony muscles. And don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>